Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Mega Strange. Now, let me ask you something. Do you ever go somewhere expecting something and then you find out that what you thought you were going to get was not what you were going to get at all? Yeah, it's called the old switcheroo. We've all been there. Somebody promises something or tells you that if you do a certain task, you're going to get something as a reward. But are you really going to get that reward? Or is this task an impossible task to accomplish? You know, when I was growing up here in San Diego, there was this radio station. The radio station's not around anymore. And they used to have this contest that they did every summer. They did it for three years in a row. And it was called Whirl Till You Hurl. You see, here in San Diego, we have this famous theme park that's built right on the beach. It's called Belmont Park. And they have this roller coaster that's like 125 years old. It's called the Giant Dipper. And what they used to do for a uh, world till you hurl is they would fill every single seat of the roller coaster. And the last person to get off the roller coaster would win some grand and fabulous prize. So we're talking like meh, 24 people. Maybe I think there's like 12 cars. So they get 24 unsuspecting people. Uh, Listeners of the radio station, maybe they were college students, maybe they were desperate 30-something-year-olds like you and I, and they would uh, promise them, you know, like $50,000 or a brand new car if you could be the last person riding the roller coaster. But what ended up happening was the roller coaster would just run all day, and at night when they stopped running the roller coaster, the contestants would have to sleep on the roller coaster, which sucks, as you can imagine. I have trouble sleeping in my own bed at night. Uh, I toss and turn with, you know, three inches of padding on, on the mattress and, and uh, the my pillow guy pillow gently under my head. I got a temperature controlled blanket. I have, uh, yeah, I have a temperature controlled blanket. Yeah, it controls the temperature. I wrap myself up at that thing and, and it just, uh, well, it actually does control the temperature. It's really nice. It cools me down. Uh, it keeps me nice and frosty. What I do is I put the temperature-controlled blanket on, and then I layer heavy blankets over it. So it's like this chilling effect, but I'm also warm. It's perfect. My bed is perfect. That's my point. And I still have trouble sleeping in it. So I can only imagine the pain of these contestants who had to sleep on this roller coaster. I mean, this is like hard steel. You probably have like a rivet boring into your brain for the... I don't know, the eight hours that you're sleeping that night. And then they'd wake up in the morning and just continue to ride the roller coaster all day and all evening. And this is summer in San Diego. It's like 100 plus degree weather. And slowly, one by one, people would just quit. Uh, it was called World Till You Hurl. So some people would barf. They would even bring in like fair food and feed these people the most disgusting food they could. Uh, trying to force them into barfing. As a San Diegan, you could uh, visit, you could watch, and as people quit riding the roller coaster and seats would open up, you could ride the roller coaster with the contestants, which was probably just like a, a, a bitter way to rub it in their face how terrible their lives were because I ride the roller coaster once or maybe twice, and it's like, hey, bye, have a good day, and then they continue to ride it for 12 hours day after day. And week after week, the problem that arose 
is that people would just refuse to get off the roller coaster, the the grand prize of $50,000 or a brand new car. It was just too much to pass up. Now, this was in the 90s. This was probably like 1997, 1998, 1999. $50,000 back then. That's probably like $55,000 today. Maybe even 60, maybe even 70 or 75. I don't know. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. I mean, I could do a lot of damage with $50,000. I'm sure you could too. Uh, so it was just too enticing to pass up. And eventually they would, this always happened. They would, they would offer like the last three people a split. And uh, I remember one year when they were offering the free car, uh, they ended up giving away three free cars to the last three contestants simply because these last three tenacious contestants were just pushing it to the limit, taking it to the brinks of sanity if you will. And I think the radio station just started to take pity on these people. I mean, they would be on this roller coaster for like three weeks, like 21 days living on a roller coaster. And by the way, where do you shit? I don't know. I think they'd give them like one bathroom break every 12 hours. It kind of reminds me of this awesome documentary called hands on a hard body, which was kind of the same thing. It was like a, a radio stunt where a bunch of people would have to put their hand on a truck and the last person to take their hand off the truck wins the truck. If you haven't seen this documentary, I highly recommend it. You have to check it out. It's fascinating because it starts to play tricks on your mind. You start to develop a little bit of a psychosis. Your life becomes this contest. This is what the contestants would say. You kind of forget who you were before the contest started, because obviously when the contest started, you were excited and you thought you were going to win. But as time goes on, you start to question, like, how did I get here in this situation? And do I really have what it takes to make it to the end? And your psyche just starts to get broken down. Uh, you drive yourself a little bit crazy, I think. They ended up having to stop doing world till you hurl because go figure they were sued um by some contestants who were upset that they were forced to be disqualified from from the contest now some of these people would have to sacrifice a lot to be contestants in this contest they would have to you know uh i remember one person like quit their job to do the contest because they thought they were going to win a car they thought they were going to win fifty thousand dollars but then they lost. They were kicked off early. And so not only did you sleep on a roller coaster for two weeks and you only got to shit like twice every 24 hours and you probably did barf, but you lost your livelihood and then you didn't win the grand prize anything anyways. So it really begs the question of was it worth it? Now, the reason that they got sued was because one of the contestants, actually a couple of the contestants, now keep in mind, this roller coaster was built like over 100 years ago. I think it's like 125 years old or something, something crazy like that. It's not the smoothest ride. It's not the safest ride. People would actually break their bones, break their bones riding on this roller coaster day in and day out. I'm talking like you bruise a rib because you're, you're doing these hard turns. 
Sorry, I'm not going to recreate. I want to. I don't want to bruise a rib while I'm doing this show here today. But you bruise a rib, and then you keep riding, and eventually the bruised rib becomes sprained, and eventually the sprained rib becomes cracked, and the cracked rib becomes broken. Uh, so people were suffering injuries all for the sake of this radio promotion. And uh, they held the radio responsible, and they sued the radio station. And the radio station said, you know what? We're just not going to do this anymore because it's not worth it to us. So... On both sides, the people thought they were going to get something out of this. They expected it to go one way. It didn't go that way. And the radio station expected it to go a a certain way, too. Oh, this is going to be so great. Oh, this is going to be so funny. Well, it wasn't funny when people were suffering from injuries uh, and then sued the radio station. Probably more trouble than it's worth. You know, uh, it reminds me also of this other radio station promotion that I heard of once. That was um, back in like 2008 or 2009 when the Nintendo Wii had just come out. Maybe you've heard of this. This is a popular uh, or famous thing on the internet. It was called Hold Your Wii for a Wii, and it was the same thing. The Nintendo Wii was so hard to find that they had a contest, and it was the person, the last person to go pee would win the Nintendo. Hold your Wii for a Wii. What ha- I think this was uh, out of Seattle, so... Any mega strangers out there who may have, who may remember this, who heard this on the radio, leave a comment below if you remember. Hold your wee for a wee, but a woman died. A woman died, and I personally, I never knew you could die from not peeing. I learned it. I know it now. I'll never, I'll never hold my my wee for too long after after uh, hearing of that episode. Um, but yeah, she was so determined to win this Nintendo for her kids that uh, she said she would do anything. And I guess she uh, took it too far. Well, that is the premise of today's episode. When publicity stunts get taken too far. By the way, um, speaking of publicity stunts being taken too far, you probably noticed that Johnny isn't here. That's because we killed him. And he's dead. And it was all for a publicity stunt. And maybe we took it too far. Rip Rig, Johnny, gone, but not forgotten. We do this episode in your memory. Anyways, moving on. I have a couple of stories here about some publicity stunts that got extremely out of control Uh, and I'd like to share them with you guys today. So strap in, pop some popcorn, get yourself a nice beverage, sit down on that couch, get comfy, because I'm going to take you on a trip through history, through bizarre history, and this we could call uh, the history of bad ideas, the history of publicity stunts that got so far out of control that the people who were in charge of them uh, ruin their reputations for the rest of their lives. And I'm I'm sure that they regret putting on these publicity stunts. And, uh, well, I'm sure a couple of people who attended the publicity stunts regret going to them as well. So this is going to be an exciting episode of Mega Strange. It's just me here today, your faithful host, Derek. And I thank you for joining me. Uh, this is going to be a great, wild trip through bizarre history Mega strange publicity stunts that have gone wrong. 
So the first uh, publicity stunt that I want to talk to you about, the first story is something that uh, happened in Texas way back uh, uh, in the year 1896. It's uh, known as the Crash at Crush. The Crash at Crush. So let me tell you about a little bit of what was happening in Texas at the time in 1896. Uh, All right, so this is about, you know, 30 years after the Civil War, and America is recovering from fighting with itself, uh, and we're, we are expanding um, our infrastructure, right? We're not, like, expanding into the West. That's over. The, the West has already been won, mostly. Well, I mean, you could debate that. But it's the era of locomotives and railroads, and um, there was a railroad company called the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad. Uh, It was known as the MKT, which were the initials, Missouri-Kansas-Texas. Or Katie, for short. Shouts out to all the ladies out there named Katie. The Crash at Crush is dedicated to you. Uh, And what had happened was they had basically uh, connected a route in Texas between Dallas and Houston. Um, And as the railroad company was expanding, they were growing, and railroad technology was getting more advanced. Um, They were upgrading. Rip Rig, Johnny, I'll put your sign up there so we can remember you. Uh, They were expanding their trains, uh, expanding their technology, and they were upgrading to heavier trains that could, like, haul more cargo haul more people, hold more fuel. They were just generally bigger, better, more badass trains. They were going from the little puny 30-ton train, which is about a 60,000-pound piece of machinery, to the to the baller 60-ton 60, 60 steam engine. Woo-hoo! That's the noise the train would make as it was uh, barreling down the railroad. And that was also the noise that the conductor would make while he was conducting this badass piece of machinery. And I like to assume that's the sound that the passengers would make when they were in the dinner train flying down this brand new railroad that had just been constructed in a 120,000-pound piece of machinery. (laughs) That's your death whistle uh, for the episode. So, the KD company, uh, good for them, expanding, upgrading to these badass trains, but they had a problem. What do you do with all the leftover 30-ton steam engines that are no longer in operation? They had no clue. In fact, they were stockpiling trains uh, in their train yards. Could you imagine this? Just like a bunch of those old locomotives. These are like the Old West trains, too, by the way. You know... Uh, you imagine like an old West movie with the black um, uh, engine car in front with kind of like the smokestack that is little on the bottom and then bellows out and it's like pouring smoke out the top uh, while it's going. Those are the trains. And they they were just uh, piling them up in 
in like junkyards and train depots and, and they had too many of them. And so this genius, and I use that term loosely because this ended up being a catastrophic failure where a ton of people died. This genius named uh, William Crush proposed a publicity stunt that would make use of all the obsolete Katie trains. What he suggested was that they essentially take two trains and put them facing each other on opposite sides of a railroad, get them going at full speed, and just crash them into each other. And the idea was that this would just be such an incredible spectacle that people from all over would come to see this planned locomotive crash. Uh, so that's what he did. Uh, he was actually inspired by a similar publicity stunt that had happened in Ohio. And he imagined that it would be super successful. The idea was that the event would be free of charge, but anybody who wanted to come to the location of the crash would have to buy a train ticket to get there. Uh, and so they would make a ton of money by just selling tickets to the middle of nowhere so that people could, like, crash these trains together. This was kind of like an Old West version of Burning Man, right? We're just going to go out to the middle of the desert and we're just going to do, like, uh, some crazy art installation. Uh, and... You know, people are just going to, all the freaks of the day, all the hippies, uh, all the Old West uh, stoners were going to come out to uh, the crash at Crush. So, yeah, they were selling the, uh, the train tickets, by the way, for $3.50, which today is about the equivalent of $114, which I find interesting. I always find, interest, um, find it interesting how far a dollar went back in the day, you know, like, uh, miners used to work for like a penny a day or something. And when Coca-Cola was first introduced, it cost a nickel. Now it costs like five bucks. Uh, so yeah, $3 and 50 cents was the, uh, train ticket. And that was round trip. And you could buy a ticket from anywhere in Texas and they would take you to this location. Um, what was this location by the way? It was, jack shit. It was literally like just an empty spot in the middle of the desert. What the Katy company did was they found a patch of land halfway in between Dallas and Houston on this new route they had built, and they dug two water wells at this site. Um, Because that's all you need to establish a city in 1896 is uh, a water well and presumably like a water tower with the name of the city on it. You know, like uh, like any Old West uh, theme park that you would visit. So they dug two water wells at the site, and they were able to get a circus tent provided by the Ringling Brothers Circus. So the Ringling Brothers were there, as well as a grandstand for viewers to watch the spectacle. Uh, three speaker stands, which uh, is noted here in the history of this event, because I guess that's impressive, the fact that they have... Uh, like platforms for people to talk on, a platform for reporters, and two telegraph offices because uh, presumably there were going to be so many telegraphs flying in and out of this location that it just couldn't be handled by one. So two water towers and two telegraph offices. 
And of course, a special uh, train depot uh, where they would house these trains that they were planning to destroy. This site um, was deemed the city of Crush, Texas. And let's not forget that the guy who planned all this thing, his name was William Crush. So in an infinite display of humility, he named the event and the city after himself. Maybe by the end of this, he would have wished he hadn't have. Uh, maybe he would have wished he named it after his worst enemy because of the, <laughs> the events that unfolded. So um, not only did they have all of that, but uh, they also had a midway built where there would be lemonade stands, Carnival games, something known as medicine shows, which I'm not quite sure what a medicine show is, but from 1896, I can imagine it's something freaky, like, uh, eh, come over here. Well, look what happens when they give when we give this guy a bunch of morphine. Look, he can't feel anything, and they start like punching him in the face and stuff. And uh, eh, look, we got something here called uh, medicinal marijuana. <laughs> Welcome to the medicine show, everybody. I don't know if that's really what a medicine show was, but I, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm just left to speculate here. Uh, they also had cigar vendors and the best part, as if watching two 30-ton trains crash into each other wasn't enough of a spectacle. They also had, like, sideshow and freak shows and carnival shows. So you could see, like, a giant man-eating chicken or um, who knows? Maybe a frozen cadaver of Bigfoot. Uh, all kinds of stuff. In fact... More people were interested probably in coming to this Midway because a lot of newspapers were advertising uh, the Midway as being uh, as saying this feature alone will be worth going to crush to see. They also erected a four mile segment of track that was built alongside the main railroad. Um, this was a safety precaution to ensure that there would not be like a runaway train on the main line uh, after the events. What they did was, um, for this four-mile uh, track of railroad, they situated each end on top of a low hill so that the track kind of led into a bowl. So they were really trying to maximize their impact here, which I guess you would want to do if the spectacle is you're going to invite people from all over Texas to see two trains crash into each other. You want to make sure it's worth it. I mean, they're spending like $115 to come see the show. Um, William Crush insisted on restricting the general public to a minimum of 200 yards away from the track for safety, but he allowed members of the press to come forward to 100 yards. So I guess if you have a press badge, if you're a reporter, it's okay for you to die in this, uh, in this event. Uh, but if, if, if you're not going to report on this, go stand back, save your life. The, the railroad expected a crowd between 20 and 25,000 people. But what actually happened was twice that amount showed up. 40,000 people showed up to the city of Crush, which at the time was more people than lived in the second largest city in Texas, which meant for one day the city of Crush was the second biggest city in the state of Texas. There were so many people there that the crash, the presumed crash was actually delayed for an hour as they corralled, as they used police to corral 
the people back to a safe distance. Uh, but at about 5 p.m., the two trains were loaded with railroad ties and uh, they were put into position. Then William Crush, riding around in uh, some sort of vehicle, something called a white charger. I don't know. That, that's a car or they didn't have cars back then. So maybe whatever a white charger is, he signaled for the start of the main event. This is where things got crazy because the engineers and the crew aboard each train opened the steam up to the prearranged setting and they rode the track uh, for about four turns of the driving wheels uh, just to get the train going and then the engineer and the crew jumped off the trains. And so these trains were just truly uh, set in motion at that point. It's uh, reported that each train reached a speed of about 45 miles an hour. But interesting enough, uh, the people there, observers, believed that the trains were traveling much faster than 45 miles an hour. But that would make sense because... If one train is coming at 45 miles an hour and this train is coming at 45 miles an hour as well, the closing speed between them is actually 90 miles an hour because you uh, take both and you add it. So if you're looking at both these trains, they look like they're going at each other like 100 miles an hour. Uh, and they and they basically are. Well, the trains collided. And it was a great and glorious spectacle. But... Shortly after, there was a large explosion as both uh, steam boilers on each of the trains exploded at the same time. A newspaper journalist who was there that day reported what he saw, and he said, a crash. I'll do this in an old-timey West voice because this is how it was meant to be written, uh, read. A crash! A sound of timbers! Rent and torn, and then a shower of splinters! There was just a swift instance of silence, and then, as if controlled by a single impulse, both boilers exploded simultaneously, and the air was filled with flying missiles of iron and steel, varying in size from a postage stamp to half of a driving wheel. I'm going to assume that a driving wheel is similar to like a steering wheel on a car, like a modern-day steering wheel. So that's pretty hellish, if you ask me. Uh, the trains exploded and sent uh, metal shrapnel just going in every direction. And I don't know what's worse, honestly, to be hit from like, uh, you know, a piece of metal this size or, you know, like uh, a tiny, like a little metal stamp that like, you know, it's like a fucking bullet hitting you. Uh, needless to say, they unleashed hell on the 40,000 people who were in attendance that day. There is a, um, a photographer who was there named Jarvis, Jarvis Joe Dean. And he took a photograph of the crash, uh, right at the moment of impact or slightly before the moment of impact. And I'll put the, uh, photo up on the screen right now immediately after this photo was taken joe dean was blinded in one eye by a flying bolt 
So the train exploded and a bolt came soaring through the air across all that distance. In that photograph, you could see how far away those trains are. And it struck him right in the face and took out an eye. Debris was blown hundreds of feet into the air and panic quickly broke out amongst the spectators. And the crowd turned and started running away. But where were they going to run to? Because this uh, shrapnel came raining down on them from up above. And it actually started injuring, seriously injuring a bunch of people. It's reported that at least six people were seriously injured by the raining shrapnel of this, uh, of this collision. And I think I have a picture of the explosion as well. So I'll put that up right here. And uh, sadly, two people died uh, from the shrapnel raining down on them, which again, party ruined. What a, what a day ruiner. You're, you're there, you know, you've seen like uh, the freak show. You've seen the Ringling Brothers Circus. You bought a round trip ticket to see these trains explode, uh, crash into each other, but they end up exploding. They end up throwing, uh, you know, 60,000 pounds worth of metal straight up into the air, and then it starts raining down on you like it's the fucking apocalypse. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that that's a bad day. That's a bad day in the life of, uh, of the Katie Company and uh, William Crush. William Crush was actually fired from the railroad company because of this, but in a strange twist of just classic American history uh, at the time, nobody seemed to care. There, there was not really a national outrage. The railroad company fired him preemptively, uh, anticipating that there would be a huge backlash, but the public was like, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it was, you, you crashed a train. Uh, what do you expect? It sounds kind of cool. I don't think they really understood that people died there or maybe like all the publicity beforehand um, just overshadowed it. But William Crush was hired back to the railroad company the very next day. And uh, the crash at Crush li will live on in infamy uh, for the rest of time. So there you have it. The very first story of our day when publicity stunts go wrong. Uh, the crash at Crush. Now, I've never ridden on a train. I've always kind of dreamed about riding a train. But when I when I look it up, a lot of people just ex uh, make it seem like it's extremely boring. You know, I always think it's like luxurious. Like, oh, yeah, you can get a sleeping car. Uh, you know, it'll be like Murder on the Orient Express. That's such a cool movie. All these fashionable people. But... From what I understand, um, traveling on a train nowadays going long distances is pretty much like a very like budget option uh, and where a plane would get you somewhere in six hours, like a train takes 24 hours. So it really does feel like being stuck in hell. So, um, I mean, I don't know why I'm talking about that. I'm, I'm kind of getting off topic, just talking about trains. I guess, um, yeah, there's a lot of train crashes in the news recently. Obviously, you've probably heard of them. Maybe it's time to do a, a reprise of the Crash at Crush. Maybe we can do like a historic reenactment of the Crash at Crush. Except do, do it a little safer this time, you know? Um, but who am I to say? It will probably end up the same way, honestly. So that was the Crash at Crush. Uh, 
our first publicity stunt. This next one that I want to talk about is uh, more recent. This one is from the late 70s, actually, 1979. But this is another case of things getting wildly out of hand. This story is known as Disco Demolition Night. Disco Demolition Night. Which sounds like it'd be like a badass John Carpenter film. Uh, you know, it could be like uh, the, the, the trilogy of uh, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., and the Disco Demolition Night. Where uh, Snake Plissken has to like go to this post-apocalyptic disco club and like, I don't know, kill the president of, of disco or, or something in this post-apocalyptic world. I digress. Okay, so here's what Disco Demolition Night was. By the way, I think this would be a good time to say that we didn't really kill Johnny case you uh that's just my version of a publicity stunt so uh who knows maybe this will be a publicity stunt gone right maybe this will bring in a lot of new viewers because people want to be like oh what happened to johnny um he's just not feeling very well tonight i don't know if he ate some bad shrimp or something but he's suffering from like a splitting headache so rest assured he'll be back for the next episode but uh he's in our thoughts and prayers so johnny get well soon we miss you buddy um we got little hedora here uh, but he's no substitute for the real salt daddy. So yeah, we miss you, bud. All right, let's get into disco demolition night. Disco demolition night was actually a publicity stunt that was held in conjunction with, uh, MLB major league baseball and a Chicago rock and roll radio station called, uh, W L U P or, uh, W loop the loop as it was known in the seventies. So I guess, you know, in the late 70s, the most popular music of the day was disco. And it was becoming increasingly popular as dance music. And it was especially popular after the hit film Saturday Night Fever, which came out in 1977. Disco was the hyper pop of its day. It was the hundred gecks of its day. Um, and I, you know, I don't hate disco. I think there's some good disco songs out there. I like, uh, I don't know why, but I like Hot Stuff by Donna Summers. And, you know, people want to talk shit on disco, or at least they did want to talk shit on disco in the day, but disco went on to influence other genres of music. I know that um, Blue Monday by New Order has that disco beat, that four on the floor disco beat. Uh, so, I mean, it had to influence... Um, some rock stars out there. It wasn't all bad. But for whatever reason, not everybody was influenced by disco. Not everybody appreciated it. And in fact, there was a major backlash to the entire genre of disco uh, by the rock and roll community. So at the same time, in 1977, the White Sox, the Chicago baseball team, they were having a lackluster season and they were struggling to put butts in seats. And so they wanted to do a publicity stunt to get people to come to the White Sox games because nobody was giving a shit. So they reached out to uh, W Loop, the rock and roll station, and asked them if they wanted to participate in some sort of promotion. Now, the radio station had a DJ, an anti-disco DJ 
by the name of Steve Dahl. And Steve Dahl was, uh, he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He was pissed off because what had happened was in 1978, one year earlier, he was working in New York City. Um, no, I'm sorry. He wasn't working in New York City, but there was a radio station in New York City that was a low-rated rock and roll station. Basically, nobody was listening to the station. Nobody cared. It was a very shitty station. So they decided to switch up their format, and they switched to become a disco station. And what happened was they became the most popular radio station in the country. Literally just by switching over to this new fad of disco music. And this led other stations to try to emulate the success of this New York disco station. And so Steve Dahl was working at a radio station in Chicago, and he was actually fired on Christmas Eve 1978, which I'll be honest nobody should be fired on Christmas Eve. Like, it's Christmas Eve. You're supposed to be celebrating and opening gifts the next day, but you're like, I'm out of a job, so I don't know how much... Uh, wish I didn't spend so much on these Christmas gifts. <laughs> it's just cruel. So there was a lot of publicity about Steve uh, losing his job on Christmas Eve, and he was hired at a new radio station, a new rock and roll radio station, and he wanted to keep the publicity going. And so he started this whole anti-disco campaign. Uh, so for Mega64, we have the Internet Soldiers, right? Every, every great entertainer out there has a special name for their group of fans. The Insane Clown Posse has the Juggalos. And Lady Gaga has the little monsters. And the Aquabats have the cadets. And Mega64 has the internet soldiers. Well, Steve Dahl started an anti-disco army consisting of his listeners, which he called the uh, Insane Coho Lips. I don't, I don't understand the reference. I don't know what the Insane Coho Lips are. If you uh, know what the Insane Coho Lips are, Feel free to leave an explanation in the comments below because I'm sure we would all love to have that one unpacked for us. But the Cohos were organized around a simple and surprisingly powerful idea. Two words. Disco sucks. Uh, and Disco Sucks galvanized uh, this entire community of listeners to the radio station. So when the White Sox reached out to the radio station about doing a publicity stunt, uh, Steve suggested that they invite his listeners to bring records that they would like to see destroyed to the baseball game at uh, Comiskey Park. And what they would do is they were going to have two baseball games that night. They were going to have a doubleheader. And in between the baseball games, <sighs> this is a brilliant idea, they were going to load up a box full of these disco records, and then they were going to rig the box with explosives, and they were going to blow up all the disco records. Hence, it was known as Disco Demolition Night. Well, uh, the White Sox, for some reason agreed to do this. They agreed to essentially plant a bomb in the middle of the baseball field and blow up all these records. 
how do you think this one's going to turn out? Stick with me and I'll let you know. So they anticipated, because it was a dismal year, they anticipated that about 20,000 people would show up. And to be safe, the owner of the White Sox at the time, a man named Mike Veek, hired a security that could handle 35,000 people, which is 15,000 people more than what was anticipated. Uh, uh, Mike Veek was actually the son of Bill Veek, and Bill Veek was the owner, and Mike Veek was in charge of this publicity stunt. He was uh, in charge of, like, uh, promotions. His father was the owner. Bill Veek was in the hospital at the time uh, getting some tests done on him, but he became concerned that the promotion might, for whatever reason, become a disaster, and so he checked himself out of the hospital uh, to go down to the baseball stadium that night. And when he got there, he almost shit his pants because he saw a bunch of people walking towards the baseball stadium carrying signs that described uh, their feelings towards disco in extremely profane terms. Uh, so I'm sure that this guy, you know, when you do a baseball game, it's kind of like a family-friendly event. Uh, it's something that you bring the kids out to, you bring the wife out to it. You know, it's kind of like going to a picnic. Baseball games are, you know, I'll be honest, they're a little boring. You just kind of sit there and watch a couple guys, like, throw a ball around, hit a ball around. Suddenly, you have, like, Kiss fans, Led Zeppelin fans, ACDC fans, Black Sabbath fans, all these long-haired freaks walking down with signs that say, like, fuck disco and and beyond, right? I'm not going to describe every profane sign, but just take a moment and use your imagination. Uh, it's 1979 in Chicago, so I'm sure that they got really creative with their opinions on what they thought about disco. The doubleheader sold out, and at least, at least... An, an extra 20,000 people were outside the ballpark. Some of them leapt over the turnstiles to get into the ballpark. Some of them climbed over the fences to get into the ballpark. 20,000 extra people. Some of them climbed through open windows to sneak into the ballpark. Attendance was officially reported as 47,795 people, but the owner of the White Sox, Bill Veek, has a whoops, has a personal estimation that there was anywhere from 50 to 55,000 people in the park that day. That is straight up music festival status. That is a lot of people. That's like a day at Comic-Con. Uh that's wild. And everybody's just sitting in the stands. Attendees were supposed to deposit their records into a large box. Uh, the box was four feet by six feet by five feet. So, uh, you know, this, this length, width, and height. Not very big. And pretty soon, I mean, they were expecting 20,000 people. Two or three times that amount of people showed up. So the box quickly became overflowing with disco records that were going to be exploded. Uh, awesome. 
And um, all the extra people who were climbing the fences and climbing the turnstiles and climbing in through the windows, they had their records in their hands and they weren't even able to deposit them into the box. And so they carried them to their seats, which is going to become an important factor in just a few minutes. The first game started at 6 p.m. with the second game scheduled to follow afterwards. There was a model, this woman who went by the name of Lorelai, and she actually worked for the radio station at the time. And the radio station ran television ads uh, starring Lorelai. And so she was like the it girl of Chicago. And everybody knew who Lorelai was. They loved Lorelai. And she actually threw out the first pitch of the game. Now, in my research, it says that Lorelai was very popular in Chicago that summer for her sexually provocative advertisements for the station. Uh, I have one of these advertisements here. Uh, we might have to mute the sound because it's it's playing like rock and roll hits for from the from the era, and I don't want to get a copyright claim. But I'll show you a little bit of what Lorelai looked like. She's very much uh, a '70s babe, which is, um, I don't know for me, I watch old seventies movies, so it's kind of nostalgic. Um, just interesting to see Lorelai, who is like the most popular model of the city, uh, in that day. So check out this Lorelai commercial Daniels into the eighties at FM 98. You have a remarkable mouth. We have a remarkable radio station. Okay. So, um, as the game began, Mike, the younger Veek, uh, the person in charge of promotions, he received word about the thousands of people who were trying to sneak into the stadium without any tickets. And uh, he sent the entire security personnel, the entire security personnel to the gates of the stadium to stop these people from breaking in. I feel like, why don't you sell them tickets? Right? Why? I, I don't know what the logic was, but the consequence of this action was that the field was left unattended by any security guards and the fans who had taken their records to their seats began throwing the records like frisbees or perhaps, you know, vinyl ninja stars onto the field during the game. Now the white Sox at the time were playing the, the tigers, um, the Detroit, the, the Detroit Tigers and the designated hitter from the Tigers, a guy named Rusty Staub later recalled that the records would slice through the air and would land in the grass sticking out of the ground. And he urged his teammates to wear batting helmets while playing their positions on the field. So first, second, third baseman, shortstop, pitcher, catcher, all the outfielders had batting helmets on. Because there were so many records being rained down upon them by the anti-disco rock and rollers who were in attendance that day. Uh, he has a quote that says, It wasn't just one. It was many. Oh, God almighty, I've never seen anything so dangerous in my life. <laughs> uh, I just like the phrase, uh, oh, God almighty, because I don't think, uh, I think baseball players should use that phrase more often in the modern day. Not only were attendees throwing um, records, but there are also reports that they threw firecrackers, empty liquor bottles, and lighters onto the field. So it was getting like incredibly, incredibly wild. And when I said this was uh, uh, 
you know, I said that the previous one, the Crash at Crush, was like Burning Man of the Old West. Well, uh, this is like Ozfest 1980 at the baseball stadium. Just a bunch of metalheads and uh, hard rock and rollers, you know, just enjoying the baseball game. I actually think I would enjoy a baseball game a lot more these days if you uh, could still throw firecrackers onto the field, which I guess you can, but it's not the same when you don't have like 40,000 people doing it with you. Also, there were dozens of hand-painted banners with slogans such as Disco Sucks and other profane um, signs, as we've already discussed, hanging from the ballpark's seating decks. So, quite literally, the fans, uh, the the insane Coho Lips, the Coho Army, took over the stadium that day. They, they completely, like, turned it into their own fortress of rock and roll. White Sox broadcaster, legendary broadcaster Harry Carey, saw groups of music fans wandering the stands. Um, but others, uh, you know, because they were getting bored, others were intently waiting in their seats, waiting for the explosion. There were reports that day of an odor of marijuana wafting through the grandstands. Um, and Mike Veek was later quoted as saying of the attendees, this is the Woodstock they never had. So that should give you an idea that this truly was like an out-of-control music festival at a White Sox game. The marijuana odor permeated the press box to the point where Harry Carey and his broadcast partner, uh, Jimmy Pearsall, commented about the smell over the air to all of the people who were listening to the game on the radio throughout Chicago, which has got to be hilarious because I don't know if you remember, but... Um, I never really listened to Harry Carey, but I remember I watched SNL in the 90s and Will Ferrell used to do a Harry Carey impression. Uh, so this is, in my mind, what Harry Carey sounded like, which would be like, hey, oh, I'm Harry Carey. Oh, it's going to be a wonderful baseball game tonight. Uh, you know, and going on to be like, holy smoke, holy cow, we've got marijuana smoke wafting through the press box here. I feel like uh, the baseball players are running in slow motion and uh, I suddenly am aware that I'm going to die someday. I'm getting a little bit of a panic attack. This is my headcanon for uh, what Harry Carey reported on the, on the marijuana smell uh, coming through the uh, press box. So it was just wild. Um, the crowd outside the stadium was also throwing records, but you're out there outside the stadium. So I don't know where they were throwing the records, probably just like winging them through the parking lot willy nilly, like probably was taking off people's heads, you know, doing all kinds of damage. They also gathered uh, records in the parking lot and burned them in large bonfires. So before the explosion uh, was even detonated, People were just setting things on fire in the parking lot surrounding the stadium and smoke was wafting out of the stadium. It probably did look like a post-apocalyptic wasteland for anybody who was driving by. In fact, the police had to shut down the highway ramps that led to the stadium because there was just so much traffic and so much population there. It was just getting wildly out of control. Spoiler alert, this story ends in a riot, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so, the first game ended. 
And at about 8.40 p.m. that night, Steve Dahl, the radio disc jockey who organized this event, uh, who, who came up with the idea, was dressed in army fatigues and an army helmet. And he, along with his co-host, uh, a guy whose last name was Meyer, and Lorelai the model, were shuttled onto the field in a military-looking jeep. They circled around the baseball field, and he says, it, well, it's a known fact that they were showered, according to Steve Dahl, in a loving manner they were showered, with firecrackers and beer. So people were just lighting uh, firecrackers, throwing them down, throwing beer as he, Steve Dahl, dressed up like a general, drove this Jeep around, getting everybody uh, riled up. He then proceeded to the center uh, to center field where the box containing the records had been moved to and was waiting for him, and it was already rigged with explosives. Steve and his partner, uh, Meyer, warmed up the crowd, leading the attendees to chant, Disco sucks! Disco sucks! You know, there were some non-disco hating fans there. There were just some baseball fans there. Some people who just like liked the White Sox or the Tigers, just wanted to see some baseball. And these people thought that this shit was getting fucking out of control at this point. And there were reports that regular baseball fans who wished to leave the ballpark were not able to do so because the security guards in an attempt to stop the extra intruders from sneaking into the park, had locked all the gates to the stadium. So once you were inside this place, it was like Mad Max the Thunderdome. You know, 40,000 people enter, but only 20,000 people leave. Uh, the gates were padlocked. Everything except one gate. They left one gate open because I think legally you can't lock people in a stadium when you're uh, about to blow something up uh, or for any reason. So, you know, imagine being locked in a stadium and it's twice the capacity that was uh, intended. There's like 50,000 people there, 55,000 people there, and they're all drunk. They're all smoking Chiba. They're all lighting explosives and throwing them onto the field hucking records like ninja stars and frisbees going all over the place the baseball team on the ground has to wear helmets while they play baseball because the records are getting stuck in the ground or bouncing off their heads and then this dude is driving a jeep around getting everybody getting fifty thousand people to chant disco sucks and you're like i gotta get the fuck out of here and you find that the fucking gates are padlocked on you and then it's up to you you're in the stadium you have to find the one gate that's open not a good time steve Dahl. Uh, after the chance of disco sucks subsided, he got on the PA system and this is what he said to the crowd. He said, <clears throat> this is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. Now, listen, we took all the disco records you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box. We're going to blow them up real good. And that's, uh, with six E's and and uh, six O's. So real good. By the way, if you're wondering, I found this interesting. Steve Dahl at this time was 24 years old. So uh, pretty cool accomplishment on your resume for such a young age. He uh, set off the explosives and he destroyed the records. And 
the explosives were so rambunctious, so big, that it actually blew a giant hole into the outfield grass. It tore it up. Um, and since most of the security guards were still watching the padlock gates or probably trying to direct people to the one gate that was still open um, on the owner's son's orders, there was no one guarding the baseball field. And so after the explosion, it says that between five to 7,000 people, 7,000 attendees rushed onto the baseball field. Uh, causing the baseball players from the opposing team who were warming up for the next game because this was a doubleheader to uh, flee away from the field and barricade themselves inside the clubhouse. These 5,000 attendees started climbing the foul poles while others set records on fire. They started setting bonfires on the baseball field, on the actual field, and still others were just ripping up the grass. Uh, the batting cage was destroyed. The bases were pulled out of the ground and they were stolen. Would you believe me if I told you that a Hollywood celebrity was there, but he wasn't yet a celebrity? You ever seen the movie The Green Mile? It was one of my favorite movies when I was growing up as a kid. Yeah. You remember uh, The Prisoner, John Coffey? Yeah. Michael Clark Duncan was at this event. He was 21 years old, and he was just an aspiring actor at the time. And yes, he was one of the 5,000 people, the rioters who rushed the field. I think this is hilarious because we have specific uh, reports of just what Michael Clark Duncan did. So it said that uh, this is described as a melee. It said that Duncan slid into third base, but then he had a silver belt buckle stolen off of him. But he uh, went into the dugout and stole a bat from the White Sox and took it home with him as a trophy. Just a little Michael Dark, uh, Clark Duncan uh, uh, trivia for you. There you go. Rest in peace, Michael Clark Duncan. Rip rig. The owner of the White Sox, Bill Veek, stood with a microphone by home plate and he begged the people to return to the stands as a giant bonfire of records raged behind him. They couldn't get people to go back to the stands. Harry Carey came on the PA system and begged the fans to return to their seats. They didn't go back to their seats. They played the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, because in their mind, that you know would get people hype for the next baseball game, but go figure, it didn't work. Uh, if these people think disco sucks, they're probably not going to be moved by Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Just, uh, you know, I'm going to wager that that's not their favorite song. So at about 9.08, Chicago police arrived wearing riot gear and uh, dis uh, disrupted the rioters in the most, uh, in, in what I can assume is just the Chicago fashion, you know, going in there, batons blazing and just uh, beating the shit out of these rioters until they went back to their fucking seats. Uh, to enjoy the next baseball game. The baseball fans who were there, who were locked in and couldn't leave, applauded uh, applauded from the stands as the riot police went in there and took on the 7,000 anti-disco army rock and rollers who were destroying the baseball field. It really must have been, like, the biggest spectacle in baseball history. Um, it it kind of sounds awesome, to be real. I wish I could be there to see it. 
The people on the field uh, were finally dispersed and they hastily ran away from the police. Uh, and only 39 people were arrested for disorderly conduct. Um, and it is said that between, well, reports differ. So between zero and 30 people were injured in the riot. The owner, uh, Bill Veek, wanted the game to the second game to be played once order was restored, but the field was so badly destroyed from the explosion that left a pit in center field from the bonfires that had burnt up all the grass from the rioters who had destroyed the batting cage and stolen the bases off the field uh, that the umpiring crew felt that the field was not playable. And so the White Sox had to forfeit the second game. And in a little piece of Major League Baseball trivia, this unplayed second game remains to this day the last time an American League Baseball game was forfeited. And that is the story of Demolition Disco Night. Disco Demolition Night. Woo! Well, that's it. Uh, those are my stories of when publicity stunts go wrong. What do you think? Have you ever been involved in a publicity stunt that was just super shitty? It didn't have to go wrong. It didn't have to have an explosion or a bonfire. Uh, maybe you just thought you were going to get something, something cool, something fun, and then you showed up and it just was not what you expected. Or maybe you were involved at a publicity stunt that was catastrophic. Let us know in the chats below, uh, the chats. Let us know in the comments below. And uh, 